Good morning. Am I coming? Th there we go. Excellent. Thank you. So many of you know Pastor Chris, who is the former associate pastor here, and my sermons now get posted on YouTube when I preach in the morning. So he actually listened to one, poor guy, <clears throat> and then they messaged me about, about it afterwards and then said, you know, you're probably going to have to think about starting a book series soon. And I'm like, yeah, I, I understand that. But thankfully, at that time, you know, we were still, uh, you know, walking through that short series of The Lord Is My, and then Monty, and then we had the special speaker, and we had Easter. So it gave a little bit of time. And then we come to today, and yes, we are starting, starting a book series. So we're going to go through the entire Psalms. And <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding, all of Jeremiah, no, no, I did I had to shy away from some of the longer books because we want Pastor Jeff to be back here <laughs> up in the pulpit. And so, <clears throat> if you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter. 2 Peter. And you look at it and you say, well, Pastor Phil, that's only three chapters. That means three weeks. <laughs> Don't get used to it. Just because we did that with Daniel doesn't mean that's how epistles work. Daniel was divided up into 12 chapters, and each was its own individual story. So it worked to preach a chapter at a time. Second Peter, <clears throat> it's an epistle. And you know how the apostles write their epistles. You know, it's, it's usually very tightly argued, and there's a lot packed in. And you've heard Pastor Jeff go through Romans, I believe. I don't know how many years that took. <clears throat> and then 1 Corinthians, that's a lot of, a lot of time. And then the whole point, I think, of going through 1 Corinthians was to get into 2 Corinthians, but then we did 1 Thessalonians because of the discipleship focus, which was a huge blessing. And then he was in the middle of a, a series on relationships before everything happened. So we're going to start a new, shorter series, and then just pray that the Lord will give Pastor Jeff strength. We don't know when he's coming back still. There's still a lot, you know, with the setbacks and going forwards. But we're going to go through 2 Peter together. So today will be really an overview of the book, so you get it all in one shot, and then over the next coming weeks, we'll go through it a, a few verses at a time and see what the Lord has for us. So Second Peter. Famous last words. Have you ever heard any? Sometimes there's the funny ones that people make up of famous last words of, hey, watch this, right? Or if I put food out, the bears will like me more. Or you could go through a list of famous last words. There's, if you Google it, you can actually get, you know, famous people and their famous last words. And some of these are quite sobering. <clears throat> and they bring to reality death and all of that comes with that to the forefront. Here's one quote. One never knows the ending. These are secular quotes, mind you. One never knows the ending. One has to die to know exactly what happens after death, although the Catholics have their hope. That was Alfred Hitchcock that said that. Of course, we can know the ending, but that's how the unsaved world often views it. Or Pistol Pete Maravich during a basketball game, a pickup game, last words, I feel great. And then he collapsed. What about these? At, at age 50, everyone has the face he deserves. That was George Orwell, who died at age 46. <laughs> this one's very sobering. Margaret, Margaret Sanger, Planned Parenthood, all that goes along with that. Final words, a party, let's have a party. Well, she's not having that right now. Or Harriet Tubman, the one who helped fight slavery. This one's a little sweeter because her final words were, swing low, sweet chariot, desiring God to take her home. Or we're out west, so what about John Wayne? Age 72, Los Angeles turned to his wife and said, of course I know who you are. You're my girl. I love you. Those are the kind of last words that are a little happier or Winston Churchill, his last words, I'm bored with it all. And that man, <clears throat> he would have seen a few things. And I don't know if uh, 
<clears throat> sorry, Pastor Jeff is texting in, and I, even though my phone is on silent, he gets to override that. So his last word, no, he, he said, how about, <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's, ah, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Just so you know, Pastor Jeff, if you text me anymore, it's going to buzz up here. So last words. There's famous people, famous last words. Why do I go through all that? Well, often when it comes to the end of someone's life and they know that their life is about the end, it will come and they'll have a time of last words. And what are last words about usually? Well, it's a time of close and dear men if you're surrounded by families and friends. You want to say, I love you. That's something usually very important. You want to say, I love you to the people that mean the most to you. But often the last words are, are really trying to summarize what that person stood for, what they meant, what their purpose was in life. And they're trying to convey in those few final words, especially maybe it's, it's, it's an, a grandfather who has lived for the Lord, and they're wanting to impart to the next generation, hey, this is what is important. So last words are supposed to be very important. And that's why we're coming to 2 Peter here. 2 Peter, why not start with 1 Peter? Because I like 2 Peter better, okay? That's, no, really, there's, there's just so much here. 1 Peter is great too, but 2 Peter, when we come to 2 Peter, these are the Apostle Peter's, really his last words. The end of his life. What he's coming to and what he's going to then write to believers. We don't know exactly who, but they are believers, and he's going to impart really what's, what's most important in his mind. And doesn't death do that to us? Pastor Jeff would even talk about that. It makes you consider what's important. Because you realize death is coming for us all, and so we only have a limited amount of time. And so with the time that we have left, we should be using it wisely, right? So Peter here, he comes to Second Peter, and he's pinning his last words before his own martyrdom and execution being put to death. And I want you to look at <clears throat> verses 1 and 2, and then we'll go to the very end, because he bookends really what the theme, what his main idea, if he could summarize it and crystallize it all, he does it at both ends of this book. Look down at Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Notice in verse 2, he's mentioning grace and peace and the knowledge of our Lord. Turn then to chapter 3, verse 18. See if you see any of these same words appear again the very end of the book, really his final, final words, if you want to look at it that way, where he says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Really, the title of this whole series would be Growing in Grace. Growing in Grace. That's the whole theme and idea of Second Peter. Growing in grace. So as we get into this epistle of Second Peter, what I want to do today is give a brief overview. And what we're going to do is look at who, why, and what. Who is Peter? Why did he write? And what did he write? Or what did he say? So those are the kind of the three questions that, Lord willing, we're going to briefly answer as we go through this study. So you, you notice there in chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter. Simon Peter. Peter. What do you know about Peter? Well, there's things that if you've read your Bible or if you're growing up in there, there's certain things that come to mind when you hear Peter, right? One of the disciples of Jesus Christ. What does his name mean? Well, Simon, rock, Peter, rock. The idea there is a rock or a stone, and that's what his name means. Now, is Peter ever stone-headed or stone-hearted? Maybe a little bit, and that's what we often blame Peter for, right? He's the one that just, you know, said so many things. He, uh, he would uh, say things maybe without thinking is how it sometimes comes across. Or he would say things that are really brash that, you know, and bold, you know, before anyone else would say it. You know, that was his personality. We see that in his actions. He was 
the guy with the sword, when they came for Jesus, cut off Malchus's ear, and Jesus had to perform a miracle right before they took him away. So you, you think of Peter, you know, as, as brash and kind of, you know, just going forward without thinking, bull in the china shop, whatever you want to say about it. But here we come to the end of Peter's life, and we see really what his whole life was about. So who is Peter? Well, he's a disciple. I just want, to, I want you to think through with me what did Peter experience? Because we, we learn a lot about him. And what did Peter say? Because he was a talker, right? As one of Jesus' disciples, he was a talker. So how did it start out? Peter, what was his occupation? Fisherman. What are fishermen known for? They're known for work, right? When do you fish? It's not like today where if you own a boat and you're retired, it's some sort of leisurely activity. A fisherman back there, you had to know how to survive both on the sea in your little wooden boat, powered by the wind, and that wind could either be non-existent or way too much, right? You also were fishing a lot of times. Remember, Jesus came to him at night even. They had been fishing all night long. There's hard, sweaty work involved here. And remember even that night that you don't always get fish, right? So it's very dependent on what your nets are catching. You're having to live day by day to even, for your even very food and sustenance. So he's a fisherman, and Jesus comes to him and says, come, follow me. And this was with a group of others that had come in, and what did the men do? Now put yourself in that place. That's, that's pretty radical if you think about it. You, you have a job, you're a hard worker, you're doing what you know is right, right? You're providing for your family, for your needs, and Jesus comes along and says, drop your nets, leave the boat, come follow me. And what that meant as a disciple is you're actually going to live with the, the rabbi, the teacher, the master. It wasn't like you just come to church on Sundays. It's no, you actually move into their place of dwelling. You're sleeping with them in the sense of the same area. You're spending all this time with them because a disciple was one not merely that got teaching like this. It's one where you interacted with each other, life on life. So you saw the ugly. You saw the bad, you had the smells, <laughs> you had the sweat. All of those things came with being a disciple. So here is Peter. What were some of his experiences? Well, they saw Christ. Remember that one time they're, they're in the boat and they look out and there's someone walking on the water? And Peter says, Lord, I want to come unto you, Right? He was the one bold enough and brave enough to say, Lord, I want to walk on the water too. And Peter then got to experience that, if even for a moment, right? Because he takes his eyes off the Savior and immediately begins to sink. So he walked on water. Peter was the one that said, he came to Christ and said, Lord, how often should we forgive? Everyone wants to know the question. Peter was bold enough to say it, right? Because really, when it comes to forgiveness, you're supposed to forgive, you know, at least once, right? But then after that, the person really hasn't changed is the idea. So why would I forgive him again? And what does Christ do? He comes and he teaches not just Peter, but all of us as disciples saying, no, 70 times 7. You keep on forgiving because God has forgiven you so much. Or even after parables, remember Jesus would tell a parable, the crowd would kind of have that look that some of us get during preaching just glazed over what what is he talking about right <laughs> and so peter came to jesus and said can you explain this and christ would he would tell the meaning of the parable i want to know i want to know not just the parable but i want to know what it means so he had these experiences but he also wanted to know what christ was or what about the time that christ himself um, encouraged Peter. When, when they were looking around and, and, and Jesus was asking the question, who do you say that I am? Some people say I'm a prophet, a good teacher, all of those things. But Peter, he was bold. He said, no, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
bold declaration of this is who Jesus really is. That's Peter. And so what did Christ say to him? He said, you're right. And on this, I'm going to build my church, this rock. And what was the rock? Well, I believe it actually was a little of both. It was both the statement, the declaration of Jesus is God, but it was also Peter because that was his very name, Rock. And you see, as we'll see in a little bit, in Pentecost, he was the one that preached that sermon on Pentecost where thousands were saved. God used him. He was very instrumental in the starting of the church. That's pretty amazing. It only gets better. Peter was one of the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. What was that? That's when Christ shone with glory on the mountain and only a few of the disciples were there and with him were Moses and Elijah. In other words, if you look at the Old Testament prophets, those were the big dogs. Those were the big deal. Those were the ones that did amazing things. Moses leading the the Israelites out, the Exodus, Elijah, the one that were performing miracles in the midst of a pagan world where, you know, he, the rain was even stopped and there's all of these things going on. And here, Peter gets to see all that. Remember what his response was? Wow, this is amazing. Let's build some tents or some tabernacles so this amazing experience can stay here. And Jesus said, no, that's, that's not what's supposed to happen right now. But Peter was there with all of that. Remember, Peter left all to follow Christ and boldly said, I will never deny him. And based on everything else, you know, you'd say, yeah, Peter, you've seen it, you've experienced it, you've professed it, we've even seen you live it, and now you're saying, I won't deny you, Christ. And what happens? He does. He does. Peter ends up denying Christ three times to his own shame and his own guilt. And that's often how we think what maybe what we think of Peter. Do you ever get annoyed or frustrated that people will define you by one thing you did way back when in your life? Because I look back on my life and I say, yeah, I, I did some stupid things. I was immature at times. I wasn't as loving as I should have been. Or I just, you know, college guy, I just wasn't thinking, you know. But yet, none of us want to be judged by just that one thing. And Christ, he doesn't do that with Peter either. Remember, after the resurrection, all of those things, he comes and says, Peter, do you love me? And what's Peter's response? It just says that he was grieved. Because <laughs> Christ asks him that three times and says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Remember, you're the, the rock. I'm going to use you to build the church and who I am. And yet you've denied me but there's forgiveness and I want you to go out boldly and feed the flock. And so what happened? Peter, you come to Acts and he's the guy that preaches at Pentecost. He's the one that, that gets to see and bring in the Holy Spirit and, and the flames of fire and all of that happening at Pentecost. And he experiences that and then goes out and you'd say preaches the greatest message of his life, right? 3,000 souls saved, people added to the church. Really the whole movement is started. And it's just Peter being bold to say the words that Christ has already given him. And then we go throughout the book of Acts and we see that Peter is really a foundational church leader through all of that. He goes to the girl and says, rise up and walk. He's the one there when Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit about how much money they're giving and donating and then pronounces the judgment. He's the one that in the midst of all the turmoil with the government boldly says, we would rather obey God rather than men. We're going to do what God says. He's the one that had the vision to go to Cornelius, a Gentile, and go preach the gospel to a Gentile. And, and then, you know, all the unclean animals come down. He said, no, Lord, I would never eat. I would never touch what you call unclean. And God says, no, it's, it's time to go to the Gentiles and give them the gospel. This was the one who was put in prison for the very words and sermons and teachings that he taught. And yet, an angel came and just pressed the automatic door opener on every prison door walks right out, 
goes, knocks on the home door, and they can't even believe it, even though they've been praying for it, right? It's amazing how God answers prayer sometimes. And then this one, that would eventually we go to Rome, and we believe that's where he's written both the book of First Peter and Second Peter, be imprisoned by Agrippa, but be during the time historically of Nero. And what was Nero as a ruler known for? Not good things if you're a Christian. He would use humans as torches, setting them on fire because they professed the name of Christ. This was the intense persecution that Peter knew and experienced. And that's why when you get to 1 Peter, the focus really in 1 Peter, a lot of it is on persecution and how to live right, rightly and look forward because persecution will come for believers. And Peter just didn't preach this. He experienced it. He would have known it. And then it comes to the end of Peter's life. And if you remember, Christ actually prophesied saying, this is how you will die. You're going to die not as a young child, but a little older. We don't know how old he was. Some, some don't believe he was advanced in years. Because, but here's how you'll die. You'll die with your arms stretched out. In other words, the idea there would be crucifixion. Most commentators would take that. Just like Christ died, Peter also was crucified on a Roman cross for his stance now, the Bible doesn't tell us, but tradition would say that Peter, being humbled in the way that he was, says, I can't even be crucified right side up because that's how Christ was. And so tradition says that Peter not only was crucified, but he was crucified upside down. Now, we don't know that for sure, but knowing Peter and all that he went through in his heart, we could see that as a possibility. So who is Peter? That's just a brief snapshot Brief snapshot of who he is, and then we come to the book of 2 Peter. This man, greatly used of God, experienced Christ personally, and now writing his final words. Of saying, this is what's important. So why did he write? Why did he write? Well, we've looked a little bit at that, and we'll spend just a little bit of time with that. Why did he write this book? Well, as we said, it's already the end of his life. If you look back at 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, in verses 14 and 15, 2 Peter 1, verses 14, 2 Peter 1, I'm sorry if I said 1 Peter. This is 2 Peter 1, verse 14. He says, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. So why is he writing? Peter is writing here because he already knows Christ has shown him and he sees the things at hand. He knows he's going to die. He knows that the tabernacle, his body, his earthly dwelling will soon be put off. And soon, the end of his life, decease, he will be deceased. He will leave, departed from this earth. So Peter is writing because he wants people to remember, to remember something. That will be one of the key themes that we come to in what did he write. But the overall theme, as we've looked at in both verse 2 and verse 18, is this idea of growing in grace. So then that brings us to what did he write? What did he write in this epistle here of Second Peter? And there are five, five sections or five main ideas that I want you to see as, as we look through Second Peter. Five main ideas. There's the idea of growing, the idea of reminding, the idea of alertness or awareness or really being beware. And that's specifically for false teachers. There's the idea of looking to Christ's second coming, look ahead, and then there's this, this admonition or exhortation at the end that Peter has. So there's the growing in grace, remind yourself, be alert to false teachers, look for Christ's coming, and then be exhorted in these things. So that's the overview of Second Peter. Let's go through those briefly 
as we look at this idea of growing in grace. So we've already mentioned that, verses one and two we read, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. And we looked at the end, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter, his desire for those that he's writing to, and now us, thousands of years later, is to grow in grace. So it comes to this idea, what is grace? A lot of people have defined it, try to define it, but there's so many aspects to it in a lot of ways, right? You could say it's God's riches at Christ's expense. You could say it's God's favor or kindness shown towards you. You could say it's his strength or his power. As you see in verse three, according to his divine power hath given unto us. So there's a lot of ways you could look at grace, but I want to look at grace from this aspect Grace is a gift, and it's a gift of God's kindness. So let's talk about that for a little bit. You know what gifts are. You've had gifts given to you, right? What are some of the gifts, the items that you remember? Do you have any items in your house, maybe hanging on the wall or in your garage, and you could go out there and you say, I remember who gave that to me and and why they did, and it, it brings back all those memories, right? Of, of, of the love that was shown when they gave you that gift. But there may be other gifts that, that you'd go in and you'd look at all the stuff in your house. Maybe it's your tools, your cookware, your furniture. And you're like, I have no idea where that came from. <laughs> I, I don't remember how that got into my house. And then comes spring, spring cleaning, right? Your wife says, we need to get rid of all this junk. How dare you call it junk, right? It's, it's my valuable possessions and stuff. No, it's, you know, it's time to get rid of it. And so when we look at a gift, I don't want you to think of an item or just a, a thing. That, that, yeah, it may have some sentimental value, You may even be able to remember who gave it to you, but you also may not. In other words, the gift I'm I'm speaking of when it comes to grace is not a stimulus check from the government, okay? And you may say, Pastor Phil, that was not a gift. That was my own money. And I would submit to you, no, it's not. They just printed more of it, okay? (laughs) It's legal when they do it. No, no, we won't get into all of that. But anyways, you don't really view that as a gift, right? You don't look at, at that money and say, oh, wow, my, my beloved and gracious government has blessed me with these numbers in my bank account, and now I am motive. Yeah, Jim's up here shaking his head. I think that's how we feel in our heart. We realize it's, it's just money. We don't know what all the results are. Yeah, it's nice to have some, but you know, what's it going to do with inflation, all of that? No, that's, that's not the gift here. Instead, I want you to think of a gift as a person, a person themselves. It's, it's more like this. You, you know a couple of weeks ago that I was taking apart my deck, and if any of you have the, have the pleasure of owning your own home um, at, with a previous owner or someone else that built it, you might have gone into your house and done a project, and you might have had choice words to say to the previous owner, right? Even though they're not there, you don't have any idea who they are, but you're like, why in the world did you do it that way, right? And then, of course, we go in and do our own DIY projects so that the next owner can say the same things about us, right? Well, my deck was one of those uh, projects, you know, that's saying, okay, this thing needs to leave. The kids are getting splinters. It's too high off of the ground. It's sagging in places. Uh, you used indoor screws that are rusted off, and you know the joists are just disconnected. So I'd gotten all the way down to the last board that I needed to take off, and instead of stepping on the joist, I stepped on a little uh, backer board that was supposed to hold up. One of the reasons was not all the deck boards ended on a joist, <laughs> so they just kind of made them fit wherever. Some are hanging out in midair, and and I stepped there, and it was rotten. I shouldn't have, of course. So I fell a couple feet twisted my ankle, heard the little crunch, all the lovely things that go along with that. And then here, I'm hobbled. I'm without an ankle. And very kind people, both my wife and then Laura, 
La Verante said, you should really go have that checked out. And they were right. But of course, that was two days afterwards. Because men, we never do it right away, of course, unless it hurts really bad throughout the night. If we're losing sleep, then we might, right? But what happened? People came up, and specifically, Randy came, and he called Randy, and he said, Pastor Phil, do you need help with your deck? I'll come over right now, because I was in the middle of it, and there's tools all over the place, there's screws all over the ground, there's boards on my grass that will eventually kill it. And what was Randy's gift to me? Well, he, didn't, he, he came over with some tools, right? He came over with a crowbar and a, and, a, and a hammer and all of those things. But really, the gift was himself. Randy himself, he came. And we had a great time together where we could fellowship together, and he was actually helping me. He was being gracious to me. So it wasn't anything that was monetary or an item, but it was really Randy himself being gracious to me by spending time and helping me in my moment of need. Now, thankfully, I've mostly recovered until Randy took me on an eight-mile hike yesterday. (laughs) But that's another story. That was a blessing, too. And so when we come to this idea of growing in grace, growing in grace, it's here's how we often look at this. God, you have done so many amazing things for me, and I'm thankful for what you have done. And Peter's going to challenge that idea and say, wait a minute, you need to say and said, God, you are so amazing. I want to thank you for being you. So really, when we, when we come to this, and as we study it out, we're going to see growing in grace is not so much growing in the recognition of what God has done for us. It's actually growing in our very relationship with God. It's growing in our relationship with Christ. And so you could, you could almost, at this point, you're replacing grace with God, or more specifically, with the Lord Jesus Christ, is how Peter puts it. And he said, my desire for you is that you would actually grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because he's the one that has shown this kindness, this favor. And is continuing to show that kindness, that, that favor. It's not like he just shows up every once in a while at your house, although we're thankful for those times. It's that Christ is with you and in you and growing you every step of the way. So, what did Peter write? Well, first we've seen this main idea of growing in grace, growing in Christ himself. Secondly, he wrote about being reminded. Look at chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Verse 12 of chapter 1 says, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, in this body, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Jump down to verse 15. Moreover, I endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, This second epistle, you know, there's 1 Peter, here's 2 Peter, Beloved, I now write unto you, chapter 3, verse 1, Both which I stir up your pure minds by the way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of the apostles and the Lord of the Lord and Savior. The second thing, the second main idea as we go through Second Peter, you'll see, is that we need to be reminded. Reminded specifically of the words and works of Jesus Christ. Why do we need to be reminded? Do you ever need to be reminded? Have you ever had the experience leaving for work in the morning, right? Honey, can you go pick, pick that up on the way home from work? Yeah, I got it. You know, we need some, some shredded cheddar cheese for company that's coming tonight. This is a made-up story, by the way. Uh, never happened. <clears throat> and so you go out and, you know, go to work, go to do your project, run your errands, whatever. You come home. It's late as far as the time is short before company arrives. You walk in the door. You're so happy to see your spouse. And they said, did you remember the cheese? And you said, yes, but just now. (laughs) 
You knew it, right? You maybe wrote it down and left the paper at home. Or wrote it down and didn't set a reminder on your phone, right? And, and Peter here is not saying you don't know Jesus or you don't know what you've done. He's saying you do know. We saw that in verse 12 and 13 of chapter 1. He said you do know and I know you know, but you need to be reminded. It cracks me up. I, I worked with college students in uh, the previous ministry we had. And we absolutely loved it. But there was college guys that would come in and they had grown up in Christian, Christian homes. They'd gone to solid churches. And here they are, they're coming to a Christian university with, with a focus on a biblical worldview and teaching the Bible and all of those things. And I would sit down with them and say, how's your walk with God? You know, are you in the word? Are you, are you seeking after him? And he said, and I would get responses sometimes like, well, I already know the Bible. You know, I've had it taught my whole life. I, I know all that's, that's in there. And so I really don't need to study or look at it anymore. And, and what's the problem there? there? We often view what's supposed to be a relationship, a walk with God as some sort of, of, of checklist of this is what I need to do. And then you're like, well, but I've already done that. So why bother? We'll put it in the context of a relationship, either a friend or a spouse. See, I already, I already know Samantha likes chocolate, so why bother getting her anymore, okay? <laughs> Bad news, right? <laughs> I, I already know, you know, I, I've, done, I've been there, done that, and, and Peter is saying, no, that's not how a relationship with Christ works. You can't just say, oh, I know about him or I've, I've had an experience in the past, you need to be reminded and remind one another to be mindful, to put in your mind, to think the right way because we're so often distracted. We're so often pulled away from the truth. There's so many other voices saying, this is what is true. This is what I want you to think about, aren't there? Social media, news, man's opinions. And Peter's saying, no, you need to be reminded about what the prophets and the apostles have said in the very words of God. So, call to mind, remember, and, and he goes through, and we'll go through in more depth later, but it really is the focus again on Christ. Just like growing in grace, the focus is on your relationship with Christ. R reminding yourself is really reminding yourself about who Christ is, his glory, how he's been revealed in Christ's very words. So grow in grace, remind yourself. And then chapter two, he goes in on the alert. Beware. Beware of someone specifically. And if you look at chapter two and verse one, he tells us to be alert on the lookout for false teachers. Verse one of chapter two, he says, but there were false prophets also among the people even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And then look at verses 20 through 22. This whole chapter deals with false teachers, even though they're only mentioned by name in that first verse. So he's still talking about them. Verse 20 of chapter two. But if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. He's talking about people who know the truth, they've heard the truth, but they get tangled back up again with false teaching. Verse 21, for it had been better for them to not known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again and the sow that it was washed in her wallow in the mire. And as we get into this more, we'll see that the dog is still a dog, the pig is still a pig, but a true believer is actually transformed into something else that will stay, but the false teacher is what you have to be aware of. And what is a false teacher? It's not always someone who comes in and says, hey, guess what? I'm a false teacher. No, they're, they're much more subtle than that, that idea of privily or privately. 
they'll come in and say, I wonder what people would want to hear today. In other words, if I came to my sermon this morning and I, and I look across the crowd and say, well, I know man's desires. What does man want? Okay, that's what I'm going to base my sermon on. It, you know, people, they like money. They like feeling good about themselves. So I'll just, you know, that, that's what my ministry is going to be about. Or false teachers, as we'll see sometimes, their very works are what condemn them. In other words, they say one thing, but you see in their actions something totally different. And isn't that what has brought a stain on Christ and Christianity for so often? Hypocrisy, right? That's what the unbeliever or the person who's shy of church will say, I don't want to go there. People are hypocrites. They're like, no, we're honest. We're sinners. We're messed up. We try not to be hypocrites here, okay? <laughs> but you're still going to find that anywhere you go because it isn't it natural for all of us to want to hide, to want to lie, to want to look better than we actually are. And he's saying, beware of false teachers. It's kind of like what I was saying. I went on the eight-mile hike yesterday with the teens and Randy and, and a few others, and it was beautiful. We went up Garden City. It's one of those uh, new developments, you know, where the houses are built on the side of the hill, and they even have their own hiking trails, and it's amazing. So we, we're going to do a six-mile loop. So we started, we had our whole posse or, you know, single file line going down this trail. Mountain bikes are coming back and forth, so we're yelling at each other every time, get off the trail. And then, you know, at the top of the loop is where we stopped and had lunch, you know, green grasses. I told any of the teens if they hugged a cow, I would give them a free Frosty from Wendy's. You know, great time. Thankfully, <clears throat> none of them did that. They might have done something else to get a free Frosty, and I'll let you ask them what that is. That wasn't me. It might have been me, actually. Anyway, so we were having a great time going on this hike, and then we come around the other side of the loop, and it starts to go up, up the hill a little bit. And so, okay, this is the steepest elevation climb, but this is fun. So we, we go up, 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 up. We come to the top of this hill. The ravine that we had just come through is down to one side. And what is before us but at least 400 head of sheep, at least, I'd say minimum. So it's one of those, you know, public lands, and boom. Uh, you, there's this whole swath. If you go on Randy's Facebook page, you can see it. He even has a 360 photo, if you want to look. And so hundreds and hundreds of sheep, they're up there by themselves, right? Nothing else is there. It's just sheep, bang, making a lot of noise. And there's all different kinds of sheep, big sheep and little sheep, black-faced sheep and white-faced sheep, scraggly sheep, probably smelly sheep, all that goes along with being a sheep. And so we're going down the path, and I'm in the back, and the teens and Randy are in the front because they know it's not just sheep up there. With the sheep, there is a shepherd. But also with the sheep, there are dogs. And there are sheep dogs. And they're not small dogs. And here's the thing about sheep dogs. They usually get white ones. So they blend in really well with the sheep. So, we, you know, we're looking and we can't find them, we can't find them, we can't find them. The teens found them. And there were at least four of them. And the reason we found them is because Further down the trail, the herd had gone on both sides. The flock had gone on both sides of the trail. And as soon as we started walking, kind of in at where you would start walking between the flock of sheep, boom, then there was four big Anatolian, I believe, sheep shepherd dogs is the kind. So curly tails, big teeth, and they were not happy to see us. In fact, they started growling at us, showing their teeth, and walking towards us. So here we are. We're just a group of innocent travelers, right? No, to those sheepdog, what are we? We're false shepherds. We're false teachers. And we're not going to let you in this flock. Now we could see maybe another half mile down, there was a tent where the shepherd would stay, but we couldn't find him nor get his attention, nor were we going to try to go through four of these sheepdog to get there. So what did we do? The six-mile hike turned to eight miles because we turned around and went back the way we came. Because <laughs> there's no way you're going to mess with those dogs, right? But what were those dogs doing? They were saying, there's danger here. You're not the shepherd. What would have happened if the shepherd would have been there? Well, we met some other bikers who were going to go up that same mountain, and, and we told them, well, just so you know, 
there's dogs up there. And even though you're on a bike, you probably can't outrun them because they're pretty fast and vicious. And they said, well, if you can get the shepherd's attention, right? If you can get the shepherd's attention, he'll call them off. And said, we couldn't find the shepherd anywhere. So what do those dogs know? They know the sheep, they know the shepherd, and they know who's not either of those things, right? And that's what Peter is saying here, is that you need to know who the sheep are, you need to know who the true shepherd is, and you need to be aware of anyone who is not. And that's the warning against false teachers that he gives. If you remember, I did a short series on Jude, Second Peter chapter 2, and the book of Jude, the few short verses there, are very similar. They're they're parallel. You could almost overlay them. In fact, people debate over who stole from who. Jude and Peter, it's okay. They were friends. They can use each other's sources, okay? So there's not a problem as far as the Bible goes. But they both were warning about these false teachers. And so we'll go through chapter two later on. But being alert for false teachers. So growing in grace, reminding yourselves, being alert for false teachers, and then looking for Christ's coming. Look at chapter 3 and verse 4. He says, there are people that are saying this. Chapter 3, verse 4. Where is the promise of his that is Christ's coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, things are just rolling along. This earth is going. You know, global warming's happening. Everyone, you know, the, the, the the, the earth just keeps going on. There's no, Christ isn't going to come back. Where's the promise of his coming? What are they called? They're called scoffers. They're people who look at the promises that Christ made and they say, Pah. and so he's saying, you're going to get that. You're going to get that teaching. You're going to get that influence in your life. But he's saying the reason that it's being delayed, he gives the reason why Christ hasn't returned. Look at verse nine. And it's so beautiful. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He said, Christ is coming again. The second coming is happening. The day of the Lord is coming. Some people will scoff at it, but the reason is so that more can, can be saved. And so it's because of his love and his grace And in the end, there's going to be big results. Look at verse 11. In other words, Christ's coming, we look to the future, and we often think of prophecy. Well, that doesn't really have any application for me because that's happening in the future. And Peter's saying, oh no, prophecy has all the application even right now. That's what he's saying here in verse 11. He's saying, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved... That's the world and the heavens. What manner of persons ought ye to be, in other words, right now, in all all holy conversation and godliness? So we'll see in this theme that looking to Christ's coming, even though people scoff and even though God is being patient, looking for the second coming of Christ has really big implications on how we live right now in our relationship with Jesus Christ. So it's a big deal. So growing in grace, reminding yourself, being alert to false teachers, look for Christ's coming. And then he closes out this book with an exhortation. It starts there in verse 14 through the end of chapter 3. Where Peter's final words, he's saying, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent, that ye may be found of him in peace without spot, and blameless. What's the exhortation? You want to be found by Christ. When he comes, you want to be found by him. Be found to be one who is growing in grace, who has been reminding yourselves and others to be mindful of the words of Christ. You want to be found to be blameless, one who has been alerted to false teachers and said, no, that's, that's a false teacher. I'm going to make him turn around on the trail and go back the other way. And you want to be one who says, Christ is coming again, even though man scoffs, and even though it sounds like a really long time. The exhortation is to be found of him. And then he summarizes it all up again in verse 17, where he uses some of the key words that we've already looked at. 
Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know, the idea of reminding comes up, these things before, beware, false teachers, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. What will your last words be? Say, well, I don't know. Let's put it this way. What will your legacy be? What will your legacy be? We often talk about people's legacy, you know, what they stood for, what they left behind, who they influenced. And Peter is saying, your legacy, your last words after all that he's been through, remember, experiencing Christ, the ups and downs, denying, but then coming and being a foundational to the whole church being started. Peter's saying, here's what I want to be known for. I want to be known for being a fisherman. No. I want to be known for denying Christ. No. I want to be known for preaching and seeing 3,000 souls saved. That wasn't the main, main thing. He said, my final words, I want to be known for someone that's encouraging individuals to grow in Christ-likeness. That's what my legacy, that's what my last words are all about. So as we get into this epistle of Second Peter, may the Lord give us grace to grow in him, to be reminded, to be alert to false teachers, to look for his coming and to be exhorted that we may be found of him. Now some of you may be here and you say, I don't know this Christ that you speak of. I mean, I've heard about him. I, maybe, I know some things about him, but a relationship, that sounds a little different. Or someone who's so gracious and kind, that's not what my experience with church has been. The call then to you is, is to know this Savior the one who has saved us from our sin so that we can grow to be more like him. May God give us grace.